For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. The state's largest school district, Epic Virtual Charter, is facing major fallout from a recent report from the state auditor and inspector. Virtual Charter Board is taking steps to possibly end its contract with the school. The attorney general appointed a special prosecutor to look into Epic, and the Department of Education is working to claw back more than $11 million from it. Ryan, what's happening here? Boy, this is like a soap opera. It's it's like the, the, the days of epic or the, the young and the, the epic. It is uh, the number of different twists and turns that happen here. There's, there's just not a straightforward narrative of, uh, of a charter school that isn't fulfilling its obligations. We have multiple uh, different side stories. You know, one of them is that one of the members of the state virtual school is a relative of one of the owners of the for-profit company uh, that manages the epic nonprofit. Um, you have folks that have been disqualified on the board for uh, being having an interest and in, and in avoiding votes on um, accountability for epic charter schools. And then it turns out that whenever they this individual ran for the state legislature, uh, that they were the recipient of a lot of contributions from epic charter school founders. Um, I think that the real, you know, if there's one through line here, it's that the state is doesn't have the adequate tools at its disposal to be able to investigate and hold char charter schools accountable for their chief mission, which shouldn't be to make profits. Uh, their chief mission is to serve the students of Oklahoma. And that, that has become even more important in the middle of a pandemic when more and more families have turned to virtual charter schools as a way to uh, educate their children. We have over 60,000 students enrolled in charter schools, uh, virtual charter schools in the state of Oklahoma right now, making them, uh, I think, the largest school district mm -hmm. in the state. Uh, and so the state is really wrestling with how do they wrap their hands around this whenever you have organizations like Epic that have made it impossible, even for the state's auditor and inspector uh, conducting an investigation at the order of the governor to be able to get all the information they need to complete their report. Um, and then you've got, I think, a couple of staff members at the virtual uh, charter school board uh, that actually are on the ground full-time employees looking into this. Uh, I think that this is setting up for a massive overhaul of the way the state deals with virtual charter schools in this upcoming legislative session. Neva. I think that's exactly right. Uh, Ryan kind of gave gave the uh, the backdrop to all of the twists and turns that 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 make for a very complicated and what will be a very protracted legal battle. I mean, what we saw on Monday with the State Board of Education uh, unanimously voting to demand back the 11 million in taxpayer funds based on the auditor and inspector's investigative audit, and then Tuesday the statewide virtual charter school board voting uh, three to one to begin contract contract termination proceedings as it's as it is called and basically what that says it begins the long process of the give and take where both sides will battle out uh, uh, trying to uh, make their case uh, uh, on, on both sides. So I think you had the EPIC superintendent at that meeting pleading for more time, trying to uh, make the case that they needed, uh, that they had uh, disputed some of the, the findings, needed more time to prove their case. But uh, 
when you when you look at the overall, I mean, particularly as you begin to delve into just reading the state auditor and inspectors um, uh, audit, I mean, you have so many things that, that cause such concern. And I think the uh, the the virtual charter school board, basically, when you look at what their action was, I think it became very clear their concern was that they had to look at, they had to step back and say, we have to make sure that we protect online uh, education was what they were saying and protect a strong choice and making sure that every everything is transparent. So rather than this Epic, which is by all accounts, the largest of all of the uh, uh, virtual charter schools in the state, the dominant force, and they are the one at the eye of the storm. And I think as this begins to unfold, Ryan is right. Legislators are going to be extremely interested um, in uh, seeing where they can go in terms of helping to uh, plug some of these holes, helping to make sure that uh, when you have a situation where you have these four these for profits that they that they have accountability in what they're doing and that taxpayer funds are fully accountable. Governor Stitt is getting some early criticism for his plans to privatize Medicaid. His push to hire a for-profit company to manage the program's spending is already facing pushback from some members of his own party. Neva, what are the issues here? Well, it, the same issues that they've been from the get-go. I mean, the governor talked about this almost from the outset of his administration and then pulled back. So it's been this constant struggle uh, of the idea of do we have managed care or not in Oklahoma and the pros and cons. And that's where the real the real rubber meets the road with these lawmakers as they begin to try to figure out, will this really at the end of at the end of the conversation be something that does uh, that that does have a cost savings attached to it or does it have unintended consequences across the board in terms of not only providing care but making sure that the coverage is paid for will it, uh, it at the end of it uh, once you once you have a contract uh, will that that uh, contracted vendor so to speak come back uh, in a year or so and say they need more money so what you thought you were saving and what looked like a good deal maybe isn't a good deal Mm -hmm. so you have all of these competing uh, conversations and dialogues going on and I think we'll have a real uh, interesting challenge between the governor and lawmakers to see whether or not he can forge a consensus because by most accounts in Republican circles uh, the votes aren't there the Republicans seem to be divided and Democrats seem to be united in opposition to it, at least at this point, that's the conventional wisdom. So it does set up for the governor to have to expend a lot of political capital to move the needle on this particular question. Ryan. Well, and you see Representative Marcus McIntyre, who's a Republican out of Duncan, he's the chair of the, the House Committee that's going to ultimately oversee uh, something like this. And you know what he said is that the legislature has been left out of the process. You've got some sort of a back and forth where the spokesperson for the Oklahoma Healthcare Authority says, well, we've reached out to the legislature. Well, it's hard to believe that they've reached out to the legislature. And then the chair of this powerful House committee uh, is saying, well, we haven't been in the loop. Uh, I think that, you know, we've, I've said it on here before, but Governor Stitt is the king of the unforced error here. If he really wants to do this, um, then you, you think that he would have rallied some legislative support behind him uh, and some support from the medical community uh, behind him before he just rolls this plan out. It seems like he's 
like Neva said, he's wanted to do some sort of managed care with Medicaid to begin with uh, from the outset of his administration. And now that we see Medicaid expanding and we see that there are going to be a lot more Oklahomans eligible for Medicaid expansion, even even now because of the, the pandemic and more Oklahomans have slipped below those uh, those qualification levels and be able to qualify for Medicaid. Uh, now he sees this opportunity, so he just rolls it out there without getting garnering any support from even his own party. Uh, their Senate leadership, Republican Senate leadership, has said that nearly three quarters of, of legislators, Republican legislators, are against this, and nearly all Democrats are against this. So even if you're going to have some sort of a managed care option out there, uh, it's you, you're, it's it's hard to believe that the legislature is going to be able to pass this. The Oklahoma Hospital Association sent over a 13-page memo uh, to the governor's office and I, I think to other legislative leadership, saying that outlining why managed care has you know many problems in the state of Oklahoma. And if we're if we want to see savings here, the answer isn't to create a middleman, uh, which is really what managed care ultimately becomes. It's a middleman. Uh, it's more bureaucracy, which is strange for a governor of the party that's supposed to be for smaller government now wanting to create more bureaucracy. But the, the problem with this bureaucracy especially is that this bureaucracy has a profit motive. Their goal is to, to make money. And so that means limiting, possibly limiting services, rejecting services. And we've seen in other states where you have managed care, especially with people with severe mental illness. Uh, that have had some real delivery of, of, of uh, services problems with managed care. So um, there's also the possibility that if the managed care is, is implemented the wrong way, that the state could forfeit nearly $600 million in federal funds from Medicaid expansion because of prohibitions on the way managed care can work. So this, this haphazard rollout, I think, uh, is, is again, another, if the governor really wants to do this, I think he's missed an opportunity in, in building and uh, taking advantage of an opportunity to to push managed care in, in Oklahoma. And I think that's true, Ryan. When we talk about these lawmakers, I mean, you have uh, uh, Senator Greg McCourtney is another person who chairs the Senate Health and Human Services Committee. And he has uh, publicly said that for nearly two years, uh, he had asked to meet with the governor so that he could better understand what the governor's position and ideas are on managed care and that the meeting was con continually denied when it finally took place. Uh, it basically... Uh, was a non-starter. The meeting, uh, he said, was fine, but uh, but then the call from the governor's office later uh, basically said that uh, um, the account was that the governor doesn't really want to talk about this anymore. So uh, it, it, there's going to have to be a, um, a kind of a restart with the legislature on how to communicate between the administration and state lawmakers. I mean, um, and whether or not that uh, uh, whether or not that takes place uh, very efficiently uh, before session starts really is incumbent upon the governor and his folks to really kind of kind of uh, reset the mark. And I think uh, I think you're right, Ryan. Unfortunately, th this is a misfire. It's not a new conversation, and that's the that's the that's the real upshot of this. There's a, been a lot of conversation. There are a lot of opinions uh, already uh, kind of already beginning to be formed or some intractable. I mean, we have some senators. I mean, uh, Senator Kim David has for uh, for a long time been one of the strongest advocates for managed care and certainly in her leadership position in the Senate will be in a uh, be in an important place to have that conversation. So it'll be interesting to see, but it's a uh, it, it's a loaded question on both sides. And I think uh, lawmakers, when they come back home and try to explain this to the folks, uh, they find even more 
questions and answers from them on uh, what should take place and why. Governor Stitt is also getting bipartisan pushback for his plan to move the state's public health lab, currently located in Oklahoma City, to Stillwater. At least one Republican lawmaker says he plans legislation in the coming session to block it. Ryan, why would people be against this move? Again, king of the unforced error in the Stitt administration. If if he really wanted, if Governor Stitt really wants to move the the state's public health lab to, to Stillwater, why didn't he get legislative support before rolling this out? I think everyone was caught off guard by this, uh, and especially the the folks that work at the lab, the current lab in Oklahoma City. It's no secret that the the lab in Oklahoma City is a dilapidated. Uh, 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 institution, not an institution, but a dilapidated facility mm-hmm. uh, that needs to be updated. There needs to be probably a new facility at some point, if not serious investments in the existing existing one. Everyone agrees on that. Um, this idea of moving folks where they are going to have to commute 70 miles one way, uh, you're going to lose a lot of uh, institutional knowledge. People are going to be forced to choose either continue to work for the lab and move or make this commute or leave or retire. Um, and so I, I think that the Republicans and the legislature already signaling that they're ready to block this move through the legislature. This is a non-starter. Uh, I think that the governor threw this out there. Who knows why he decided that, you know, let's do this in Stillwater. I mean, they, they have some they have some rationale about better delivery of services to rural Oklahoma. But that seems to me like after the fact rationalization of trying to explain why they're doing this. So I, this is this to me is is another idea that the governor's office has put out there that probably won't last long on the vine. Neva. Well, I think um, I think again it is the uh, the optics of this. I mean, you had the uh, public health employees uh, at the lab basically uh, hearing this news from news reports. Uh, later, getting an email uh, saying that uh, they were being offered to keep their current positions. This is not a large uh, lab. I mean, you have I, I think. Uh, Uh, probably around 60 state employees is the figure that's been thrown out there. But nevertheless, many, many of these folks have more than 20 years uh, uh, tenure with the state at the lab. And this dilapidated uh, lab that everyone knows needs to uh, needs to there needs to be a new one built. It's long overdue. The location factor, and 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 I think you're right, Ryan. If you if you wanted to move it, you need to make the case, and you need to preempt all of the arguments that are going to come out against it. And you had Democrat uh, lawmakers coming out raising questions about using 25 million in the CARES funding, whether or not that's appropriate as part of how to uh, uh, how to uh, put this package together along with the the bond money and some other things. So, but the central location for the lab is probably the argument that you, if, if you want to move it, you need to come up with the, uh, the best case argument for why you would not want to have your lab right in the, the center of the state at the hub where you are right in the biomedical complex area and have everything uh, where you can immediately uh, uh, dispatch it statewide with the most efficiency possible. So um, again, a lot of questions uh, in immediate uh, reaction with Representative Ryan Martinez, uh, same day saying that he would file legislation to block it. Um, uh, Representative Martinez, uh, someone who is, uh, you know, certainly 
uh, been at the legislature, knows the ropes, well-respected. So we'll see uh, how far this goes. But uh, clearly, clearly there's a, an impasse and a lot of blowback from the governor's announcement. Ryan, is there hope that talking about at least maybe putting this on the table will start a discussion in the legislature about actually funding the dilapidated public health lab? Right. And, and I, think that, I think that that is uh, a critical critical conversation that the legislature needs to have. They've, they've needed to have that conversation to take action. I mean, I think the conversation has been out there. It's just a matter of taking action. You know, Neva mentioned the uh, governor's proposal of using CARES Act funding uh, that the state of Oklahoma received from Congress in the wake of the pandemic uh, to help fund the construction of a new lab. I think there's some real concerns about that, both from an efficacy standpoint. I mean, is this really the way that CARES Act dollars uh, should be spent in the state of Oklahoma to mitigate the damage caused by the pandemic. You know, we're, we're talking about a long term, we're talking about a, an infrastructure investment uh, with money that's meant to respond to a crisis. Um, so I think that that's, that's going to be a really big part of the conversation. And then just from, uh, you know, so that's, that's the policy side of it. And then the other side of it is, you know, should this CARES Act dollars, uh, is that, is that how the state really needs to do this, or should it just be through general appropriations? I mean, this is a state service. Even before the the state labs started processing a lot of these COVID tests, I mean, they, they do everything from newborn uh, health screening processing uh, for the entire state. I mean, so you know, this is something this is uh, something the state relies on on a regular basis, even before the pandemic. Uh, and we should invest in it to make sure that we've got the very best lab for the delivery of healthcare in the state of Oklahoma. Well, one of the other interesting um, things that the governor outlined in his news conference was the fact that uh, they would be creating an interim location in Stillwater and that it would be open by the end of the year. I mean, we're talking... uh, uh, less than, you know, less than 60 days. Uh, so if that is the case and that comes to fruition, then that further compounds this whole give and take when the legislature comes back in in February. So a uh, lot of lot of things uh, in play here. And uh, I think I think there's certainly once again, we have a situation with more questions and answers and a very poor setup to trying to make the case uh, if, in fact, you want this uh, relocation. As the governor said, he made he made the point that uh, he wanted it to enhance Oklahoma's rural medical capacity. If that's your if that's going to be your push, then you're going to have to make a much, uh, I think, stronger, concerted argument to uh, win the day when you come back in and deal with the legislature. Well, if, if that's the case, let's put it out in Wewoka, Oklahoma. That, that's where I'd like to see it. Let's put it in Wewoka. Uh, you know, they the, the real thing that, you know, there, I think that the governor probably can create this interim on his own, and he does that. And then the legislative discussion takes place in the middle of an upheaval uh, and chaos within the lab at a time when the lab's functions are probably more critical than ever the, to the state of Oklahoma, because we could see uh, a, a real exodus from the, the ranks in that lab. And so we could see an understaffed lab uh, and, and a real chaos of where things are located. And that could be the context in which the legislature considers all of this. That's that's, and then there's the the question of legality. Can the governor legally spend CARES Act dollars on this? There may be some legal challenges to that. Um, and again, this is the governor picking a fight that he didn't need to pick. You know, why why is the governor having this? Uh, does did they have a dartboard in the conference room uh, <laughs> in the governor's office with just a bunch of bunch of topics on there that says, you know, pick a fight with uh, with the state's tribal uh, nations today, or, you know, do we want to uh, pick a fight with uh, the medical community today? And they just throw throwing darts at it and seeing which one they can start. 
it seems really counterproductive. The governor has an agenda. I mean, he has a very clear agenda of what I think he does, at least, of what he wants to get done. Uh, and he does everything that he can to undermine his own agenda. Meanwhile, the governor is also seeing a shakeup in his administration. Following the resignation last week of Michael Rogers as Secretary of State in Native American Affairs, Stitt appointed former Senate President Pro Tem Brian Bingman to the position. However, Secretary of Budget Mike Mazie also announced his resignation, joining a handful of cabinet members and staff who have left. Neva, are you surprised by these changes? Not really. I mean, they're, they're certainly, I think, uh, in the in the broad view of it, there are positive changes. I think uh, uh, Brian Bingman becoming Secretary of State and Native American Affairs, continuing his role as a uh, legislative policy advisor to the to the governor. I mean, he brings to the table uh, a tremendous rapport and respect, not only among uh, legislative folks, but uh, agency leaders, people in the governor's cabinet. I mean, he is. Uh, he has uh, proven very quickly since coming on board in August that uh, that he fills a big void. I think uh, he he is someone even by the governor's own description, talking about uh, uh, Bingman's uh, wisdom and his calm demeanor and uh, his understanding of the whole legislative process. I mean, those are things that uh, that the governor desperately needed. I think uh, in in the mix uh, in his administration to be able to deal with some of these political fights that are that are on the horizon. And I think uh, Senator Bingman was, uh, by his description, a natural choice. I think it was a refreshing uh, choice uh, to uh, many uh, inside the Capitol who uh, will will have that working relationship. And quite frankly, uh, he uh, he brings uh, he brings the ability, I think, to maybe jumpstart some of these conversations or restart some of these conversations with the uh, with the lawmakers that uh, heretofore has not been very good. On the flip side, uh, Budget Secretary Mike Macy, his resignation, I think, uh, 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 was one that, uh, you know, many folks, uh, again, in the legislature were not sad to see because uh, he had been someone very difficult uh, by most accounts to work with. Uh, He had been basically cut out of the uh, state uh, budget negotiations uh, uh, this past uh, session. there was a great deal of conflict between legislators, the budget writers, uh, the governor's uh, folks, and uh, kind of in the eye of all of that was uh, uh, was uh, uh, Secretary Macy, who you know had for 12 years in his legislative tenure previously uh, been the guy who had been the Senate Finance Committee chair most of that time. So he knew he knew the ropes. He knew uh, he knew all of the the. Um, the processes, but didn't uh, seem to have much success interacting with the budget chairs in the House and the Senate and dealing with uh, the the overall big picture on the budget. So um, I think uh, the, certainly Governor Stitt, uh, uh, you know, spoke highly of um, of, of uh, his uh, cabinet selection, you know, that uh, at the beginning, he was there kind of on the front end of, of the state administration. So he's been there, he's contributed, now he's going back into the private sector, and we'll see how all of this now begins to kind of take a new shape uh, as they work, I think, probably very diligently behind the scenes to uh, get prepared for the upcoming session. Ryan. Yeah, I think Senator Bingman is is a is a solid choice for this. You know, I've I've known Brian Bingman for a very long time. He 
He and I, whenever I was in the legislature, my House district overlapped part of his Senate district in Oakfusky County. Mm-hmm. He was always a good partner in, in helping represent the people of Oakfusky County with me. And I think that his experience in the legislature and his knowledge of the way the state government works, um, he brings a ton of experience uh, and, and to, to this position and could be a very valuable asset to the governor's administration. Um, and I say could be because you, you can have the best quarterback in the world, uh, but they don't score you touchdowns if you don't put them on the field. And I think that the, the real question, and I talked to a couple of lawmakers about this, you know, one of them was, was uh, Forrest Bennett, and he said, well, this is the kind of a turnover that you see in an administration that's in its last days of its second term. You know, folks leaving to go to the private sector and then coming, and then you're putting folks in for the last couple of months. Um, and then I also visited with Representative Colin Walkie, who said, you know, again, you can have the best folks out there, but if, if you don't listen to them. And I think that that's, that's going to be the real key here is whether or not uh, Brian Bingman will actually have the governor's ear and he'll be able to influence the governor in these decision-making processes. Who knows? Um, I mean, I think that there have been a lot of really smart people around the governor from the outset of this administration, but we've still seen the governor make a lot of unforced errors, whether that's uh, the litigation over over compacts, you know, whether it's, you know, we talked about today, the, the rollout of a, a new mm-hmm. lab location, the rollout of Medicaid privatization and ma- managed care, all of those things are things that I'm sure that the governor, I'd at least like to think that the governor has folks around him saying, these are, these are either good ideas that need better execution, or these are terrible ideas and we should walk away from them. So it's, it's really going to come down to whether or not Senator Bingman can influence the governor. And I guess one last thing that I would say on the, um, uh, where, where the governor is going to ask Senator Bingman, who is a member of a, uh, of a sovereign nation himself, um, whether or not, who else, who else was in the running for that? I mean, I think the governor's, um, this administration's relationships with, with sovereign tribal nations in the state of Oklahoma is so poor at this moment uh, that, I, that I, I imagine that there weren't a lot of people knocking down the governor's door wanting to be a part of this administration's policy uh, towards tribal governments. And Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.